Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How can parents engage their kids in conversations about money? And how do these conversations shape kids' thoughts and future financial decisions? Margaret Eckelbarger has spent much of her career researching the unique connections between kids and their financial decision-making process. Currently, Margaret is an assistant professor of marketing at Stony Brook University. She also explores the behavioral side of marketing by learning how kids make those financial decisions now and into the future. Whether we realize it or not, as parents, our children are always watching our financial decisions and what we buy, how we buy, and even how it makes us feel. Margaret's research has shown that kids can understand competing priorities at an early age, which can help them even recognize the concept of, you get what you pay for. Most parents likely have stereotypes about money that influence their own unique behaviors. But parents who talk to their kids about money can overcome their own money insecurities. In research that Margaret has reviewed, parents who talk with kids about money can statistically help their kids financially succeed in the long term. Teachable moments for our kids are abundant, so parents shouldn't worry about finding the perfect time to discuss money-related topics. As Margaret points out, kids at an early age are trying to connect the emotional dots between spending and saving. For example, does saving feel good or bad versus spending? Please enjoy my conversation with Margaret Eckelbarger. So, Margaret Eckelbarger, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thank you for having me. And I love all my guests, and I think you're going to be like episode, like, I don't know, high 80s. But before we hit record, I've got to share this because I'm sure somebody from our hometown listens to this podcast of Adrian Mishkin and the fact that we are both from Adrian, which was extremely shocking <laughs> to me when, when we when we started talking about this because I knew that you did um, your PhD at Michigan and then well I'm originally from Michigan I'm like okay well that's interesting well where and and, and Adrian so um, varies for most for anybody that doesn't know Adrian is an extremely small town it's really unique in the fact that there's not one but two colleges there and I, well, I actually now, actually. So Jackson, I believe Jackson Community College is now Jackson College. And so there are actually three. It's a very yeah. interesting area. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, because that area used to be dominated, um, call it like the old Rust Belt, if you will, with all these manufacturing companies that have since now gone. Um, and I actually I actually finished my undergrad at Adrian College, which awesome. I don't I didn't think I I told you that when we started, but uh so yeah, this is uh this is really interesting way to start our conversation. But for for those that that don't know you, talk about um who you are, a little bit about your background and 
we're going to get into the field of behavioral science, which I love. Like I could talk to you, behavioral scientist, all day, every day, because I think that the work you do is so interesting. So I'll I'll uh, I'll let you take it from here. Sure. Thanks. Uh, well, I haven't. In complete transparency, I haven't nailed down my own story yet, um, nor the best way to tell it. Uh, But my PhD is in developmental psychology. Like you said, I went to Michigan and now I find myself as this assistant professor of marketing in a business school. And I will say in many ways, I'm, I just want to share, I'm very lucky, one, to have landed this tenure track position and two, to have landed a tenure track position in a marketing department, super excited about my work with children. And let me say a bit more about that. So I'm interested in how we develop into the consumers we are, and in particular, the financial decision makers we are. So this means that unlike uh, many marketing scholars, my primary population of interest is children. And so to be clear, there are these fantastic marketing scholars who have long worked with children, but just in the grand scheme of things, there aren't that many of us. And it's the case that my path has been a bit windy because I didn't know there were folks studying children in business, and I did not know that you could earn a PhD in marketing. So thanks to having a a very supportive PhD advisor at Michigan, Susan Gelman, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about my work with her later, and some wonderful mentors in marketing and behavioral science including a dream postdoc with a great advisor, I was able to make this transition from developmental psychology to marketing. Yeah, that's you. That's really fascinating. The fact that you pointed out that you're in marketing, but you're on the behavioral science side of it and you're dealing with, with children. And I think that's how, or that's probably the reason why, um, uh, Lindsay Malloy, uh, said, hey, you need to talk to Margaret and get her on the show. Um, I've had Lindsay on before um, uh, with parent or pandemic parenting. I'll link to that in the show notes. But um, most of the audience are active parents with lots of kids. Like there's not too many in my situation that have triplets plus one, but there's lots of families out there that have twins, triplets, or just multiple kids. Whether you have one or three or four, it doesn't matter. Um, I think it's, I think parents everywhere are struggling with, if they're not struggling with how to manage electronic devices, they're trying to, to, to instill some kind of sound financial behavior within their kids, especially, um, these days with, you know, cost of college going through the roof. And another topic that always comes up is this cost of, um, travel sports or just sports in general with kids. So I'm sure we'll maybe touch on that um, in a little bit, but why don't, if you could like dive a little deeper into a little bit about your work. And I think the, one of the first questions I had wrote down is how do these social norms guide our economic uh, decision-making, whether we're an adult or, you know, a, a growing child, if you will. Sure. Well, I think there are many ways that we could think about this. Uh, In my approach, I'm interested in understanding how competing concerns for such things like fairness and the rules of market exchange interact and ultimately influence our economic behavior. 
So in my work with Susan Gelman and Chuck Kalish, this is the work I did as a grad student, we found that how children balance these concerns changes across five to 10 years. So the, the children in this particular study I'm going to talk about were five to 10 years of age. So more specifically, uh, children who would otherwise prefer to distribute resources equally among others do not do so when others are willing to pay different amounts for those resources. So even young children understand that you get what you pay for, yet um, children's willingness to depart from this uh, quote, fair is equal norm, increases with age, reflecting an increased understanding of proportionality within market economies. And I wanna be clear, there is a lot of nuance uh, I'm glossing over, not so much with my own work, but children's general propensity to distribute resources equal, uh, equally. Um, that's a different conversation, but I think at the end of the day, what I find utterly fascinating is that children have developed a keen sense of the market and how it works, before perhaps they receive formal uh, instruction in educational settings. Well, and that's interesting because as you probably well know, from my perspective as a financial advisor, planner, fin basic finance 101 isn't necessarily taught at you know a grade school, a middle school, a high school, and even a college level. So the fact that when you're research, you're finding children are are getting this understanding of they get what they pay for. Like, can you dive a little bit deeper? Like, how does that work? Like, how does that even, how does a child even figure that out? Uh, the reason for the pause is because I, um, this is a question that is uh, something that's on my mind a lot. And it's related to some of the ongoing work that I have um with some some collaborators, in, including including Susan Gelman, but um, I will say just when I think about the conversations I've had with parents and the observations I've made, uh, just through conversation with children, but also just watching how they behave out in the wild, if you will, um, I think what some parents or what some adults don't appreciate is just how much children see. Uh, when we're engaging in our own market-related behaviors. So we're going to a grocery store, we're uh, swiping a credit card. And in my case, when I was a young child, my mother wrote a check at the grocery store, right? Old school. <laughs> Old school. Uh, and side note, um, it's interesting, although I, you know, children have this uh, wonderful understanding of the market that emerges quite early, they definitely are getting things wrong. And so, for example, when I was a child, I do remember watching my mother write checks and wondering, why couldn't we just write a big check to ourselves? Not really understanding that she was writing from an account, you know, that this check was connected to a bank account, ultimately where this money would come from. Nonetheless, uh, I do think children are taking in a lot of what they're seeing around them. Um, so again, just going back to the grocery store, seeing parents um, shop online or even older siblings, uh, but also there's um, a, a number of market-related behaviors children engage in in themselves. So sharing, trading, um, just general reciprocity or reciprocal behaviors that happen on the playground. And so it's not always necessarily the case that we need to provide this formal instruction in order for children to learn about uh, some of these um, uh, 
more structured practices and processes that we have in place, like the financial market, there are analogous things going on in their everyday lives that they're able to extrapolate from. So one of the things I'm always interested in, especially like when it comes to the research that you do with with children is just that, like, how do you how do you find the kids? How do you, what's the process for, for creating or gathering the data that you do? Sure. Uh, I like this question because we've been able to get a bit creative, particularly in response to the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, the majority of my data collection with children actually took place in public settings like museums. So I was at uh, the University of Michigan and benefited from this wonderful collaboration called the Living Lab initiative that allowed um, researchers to collaborate with public spaces like museums to uh, offer the opportunity for kids and their parents to participate in a form of science that's typically underrepresented in museum spaces. So I love doing research out in the public. In my um, postdoc, prior to the pandemic, I was uh, I was in Chicago and I was able to collect data at parks in the Chicago area along with um, uh, being at the Museum of Science and Industry. Uh, now, that we are grappling with, you know, everyone's health and safety comes first. A lot of us shifted our research or our data collection online. So <clears throat> there, there's a lot of infrastructure in place to support online research with adults. However, with children, there are some additional barriers to collecting data. First and foremost, we need parental consent. Right. Secondly, we need child assent. We need to make sure that children understand that, you know, uh, what they are going to be doing with this um, unfamiliar adult and that they want to do it, right? And so I moved my research online and was able to adapt some of the practices that were put in place by researchers with more robust um, online infrastructure. And so uh, there are some great, and and maybe we can, we, this is your podcast, you can link to it <laughs> um, in your show notes. Some of these uh, opportunities that are available to parents like the Look It platform. If they're interested in their having their, their children participate in research, they can do so um, from studies that are being conducted by researchers around the world. It's pretty amazing. And so in short, I'm in public spaces and online. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely link to whatever um, you know sources you want to um put in that, that we can encourage parents to go to, you know, and, in listening to your response there selfishly, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, do you guys get down to a granular level where like you specifically work with, um, twins or triplets or, or multiples? There are absolutely people who have dedicated their research careers to studying, um, development within the context of, uh, monozygotic and dizygotic twins triplets, et cetera. This, that is so outside my wheelhouse. Um, I definitely have uh, recruited data from siblings within individual studies, and there are ways that we can adjust for that with our analyses and whatnot, or parents and children. Those are other sorts of relationships that I'm, of course, very interested in understanding, at least in the context of how we talk about money. But um, in terms of my own work, I do not look at twins, triplets, et cetera. But but if you give me a few minutes to Google search, I can point you in the <laughs> uh, Google Scholar search. I can point you in the direction of some 
people who this is um this is sort of their uh bread and butter and they've made amazing contributions and just understanding um you know the environmental contributions genetic contributions epigenetics again i'm just throwing words out there because i really don't have a great understanding admittedly of the work with twins and other sorts of multiples yeah it's just curious because i i do work with a lot of families that have twins and triplets um and i think it always comes it co comes back to this underlying point of or question of nature versus nurture um because a lot of parents that obviously don't have multiples or people in general, I think have this stereotype where, okay, twins, triplets, any multiple set, like, well, all the kids must be alike. And <laughs> we're always squashing oh, really? that. Is that the case? Right. Right. Yeah. And like they, they're all individual people, even like the identical, like we're unique in that our triplets are a girl and identical twin boy. So it's, it's, it's really, really unique, but even like the twin boys, I mean, they they couldn't be more different. They all have their own unique personalities. And, you know, in this conversation I was having with, with my family yesterday, you know, it, they, they set off on one path and then they crisscross, like they, they, they will be somewhat similar one day, completely opposite the next day. Um, but it's just interesting on, they're all coming from the same family. Um, they all, and, and actually this gets back to one of the points that you, you were mentioning earlier that children are paying attention to us as parents, as to what we're doing. I would imagine they're all seeing the same thing, but they can interpret it any way they want. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, you know, they're, there's no reason to, at least from my perspective, to assume that uh, children growing up in the same home are going to, you know, personality wise be just carbon copies of each other, right? So um, there are different reasons why we may be interested or pursue different interests than perhaps a sibling. I will say in my own work, although, you know, we certainly were not recruiting uh, twins or triplets, even when I'm evaluating how children respond to the same scale so often do do parents tell me oh they're they're just like each other or oh they're so different and so it can go both ways i see where children behave more similarly to each other on some measure than parents would expect but also behave more differently or behave differently from each mm -hmm. other than parents would expect. And so it's also the lens through which we're interpreting children's behaviors as well, that we need to think about this too, right? So one of the one of the things that I try to help educate the families I work with on are how to have conversations around money with their kids. And many times, especially as you know, kids get older, um, parents will bring me in and have have me have a sit down with their kids to talk about college planning or um really it's it's college planning is their their main focus but lately it's been more when when a kid lands their first job um what what should they do with the money should they save it if they save it where should they save it at and uh, a lot of kids that I've I've been working with lately have been starting their own uh, Roth IRA accounts, which is completely awesome. I, I think it's 
unbelievable. And, and having these conversations with these kids about, you know, what a, what a ETF is or a mutual fund or a stock and, and how that works is just, I love that. I, I love, you know, helping them, especially at a young age, because I know that I, I know research proves this out. The younger that you can get to somebody talking about the markets or saving, you know, the, the more likelihood that they'll turn that into a habit of lifelong saving and investing. So how can parents engage their kids in conversations around money? What, what is your research kind of brought to the surface, if you will, that could help parents like myself or parents listening to the the show? Sure. I will say opportunities abound, right? So we shouldn't necessarily wait until we feel like it's the right moment or wait for the perfect conditions to engage in these conversations. So, you know, from car rides to reading books, to sitting down and inviting children to participate in household budgeting, these are all sorts of ways that you can include or begin to initiate discussions about money in homes. And I will say, I primarily work with children five to 10, so I'm not quite thinking about um, how to have these conversations necessarily about college or, which I think is great. I think um, uh, just the idea that we, that, that so many young adults are um, taking on so much debt without a great understanding of what that might mean long-term is, you know, we, we can certainly do better by our youngest consumers in that respect. Um, but where I think I can provide some recommendations is really for these children, uh, five to 10 or more middle school. And so I, I want to start by sharing, though, this uh, survey that was conducted by T. Rowe Price. I thought, it, you know, I share this number in a lot of my talks and it's, you know, a sizable percentage of parents are indicating somewhat or very reluctant to discuss money with their children. And just as you said, at the same time, we know that these early economic socialization experiences are super important. So young adults who report having engaged in these discussions about money with their parents also report being financially better off. And I will say, you know, I was super lucky to have parents who understood the importance of discussing money and perhaps even overcame their own barriers to discussing it because money remains this taboo topic, at least in the United States. And so anyway, if you're a parent to uh, young children or a young child, I think there are some wonderful resources that are out there. Some have been made by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I can share that link with you. And others are available on social media. I follow several parents and state initiatives designed to support families wanting to improve financial literacy within their homes and specifically among their children. So there's no shortage of uh, content out there. Now, this might be perhaps a shameless plug, but here we are. Uh, I also plug review- away, plug <laughs> away, Margaret. Listen, I review money related books on Instagram for young children and highlight those that I think are especially good toward facilitating conversation and learning. And so you can find me uh, at Talk Money with Kids on Instagram. But one of my favorite resources is this marketplace podcast called Million Bazillion. And this is because I think some parents hesitate to talk about money or some adults with with the children in their lives because they're simply just not sure what to say. And so books and podcasts are a great way to start these conversations. 
And I, you know, what I think is most important is that we as adults reveal to children when we don't have the answers ourselves. So we can treat financial literacy as a learning experience for both the child and the adult. And I will say my intuition that parents um, or my observation that many parents struggle with knowing what to say is supported um, by just some of the observations I've made watching the videos from the study sessions that I've conducted. So I've had parents who, you know, they're presented with the opportunity to effectively discuss the fungibility of money with their children in a book task that uh, I developed with some collaborators. And although as a as adults and perhaps as two people very interested in financial stuff, we we just know what that means at this point, right? But when asked to essentially articulate what that means to young children who do not understand. Adults don't necessarily have the language to do that. Some some of the parents, you know, they they knew, they they understood that their child did not understand the fungibility of money. They wanted their child to understand something. So either they did not really talk about it in a way that was age appropriate, or they reverted to talking about something else that they could teach their children, which also may or may not be age appropriate. And so this is why I go back to these resources that are out there that I think are um, really helpful books and podcasts, because one, these are collaborative experiences we can have. We can be in the car listening to an episode, for example, a million bazillion, and we can periodically press pause and just see what are our children thinking? What am I thinking? And if necessary, do a bit of our own uh, research with the child or without the child after each episode to get answers to lingering questions. I think one of the interesting points that you just you just hit on, and I never really thought about this before, is that parents having these conversations with their kids can actually be a benefit for them and help them get over some of their um money or financial, um, uh, you know, word for it, um, fears even, I would say. For sure. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's hard to admit when we don't have answers, particularly to those who look up to us the most, like our children, but this is a case where perhaps, um, being, uh, showing a bit of humility can be helpful for both of us in the long term. And so I, I think, you know, just again, I uh, am so thankful that my parents had these conversations and I didn't, cer- I, certainly, I probably didn't understand everything that they were saying at the time, but what remains with me is just their, how open and candid they were. Um, now, I'm not suggesting we reveal everything. I'm not suggesting you... Uh, require your five-year-old to sit with you while you prepare your taxes. Uh, (laughs) But if you are, for example, at the grocery store and you're using a coupon, let's say, you can take that time to discuss why you're using the coupon and, and how you go about calculating the new price of the cereal. Or you can say, you know, we can buy this or that. Uh, which do you think we should buy? And you can 
talk with through some of your reasoning. Well, this one is on sale or this one is more nutritious or this, um, depending on the age of the child, this price per unit is a better deal for us. Or why do we pay more for something sometimes, you know, with bulk pricing and whatnot, lots of things you can do if you are, are, uh, willing to think a bit more creatively about it. It's funny that you mentioned shopping because I'm still going back to the fact that we're both from Adrian, which is still (laughs) blowing my mind, Um, is that I remember going shopping. Usually my mom and I would go shopping on on Friday, uh, on Fridays after school at at the local Meyer in Adrian. And it, it was this game I played with her about, you know, I would add up everything in our cart and then see how close I got to the end when we when we were checking out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, maybe that's that was the beginning of my infatuation with with numbers and, and math, but uh it it's definitely in 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 you going through that example, that was that was something that just popped into my mind that was very uh personal um and, and interesting. Um you know one of the in in looking at some of the research that you've done in papers, one of the things that um, you talk about is how can kids' preference for variety be leveraged to promote better choices? Can sure. you talk a little bit about that? And then and then somehow weave in, since we're getting close to Halloween, the, the Halloween example with the candy uh, that, that you've, that you've uh, given. Sure. Um, let me... So those are, uh, I think you're hitting on two different studies there. And so let's see how we do with this. First of all, I love Halloween, but you know, it's my mother's favorite holiday, but more so I love November 1st when that Halloween candy is on sale. (laughs) So I will absolutely be going to the store on November 1st, although I live in a very um, uh, densely populated area in terms of uh, children. So I I suspect that most of that candy will be gone anyway. I think variety is this interesting thing. A lot of people study it. um, And, you know, obviously I think it can be used as a way to help children make uh, better choices. And so let me give you a bit of my reasoning for this. So we know that exposure to more varied foods earlier in life is associated with more varied diets in adulthood. And in general, uh, more varied diets are healthier. And we also know that offering children more variety during mealtimes can increase the chance that children will consume more of a type of a desired food. So for example, if I present children with two or three fruits uh, at lunchtime, they they may be more likely to eat at least one type of fruit at lunch, right? Than if I just present them with one option. So in work with Michal uh, Mamerin and Susan Gelman, again, we found that given a similar preference uh, for a healthy and a neutral food, so let's say a broccoli and a a cheese cracker, children six to nine years were more likely to select a varied set of foods. So a broccoli and a cheese cracker versus two broccoli pieces or two cheese crackers. And so what this means is that a preference for variety can potentially be leveraged to give more market share, let's say, to foods parents would like their children to eat more of. And we also found, uh, for example, well, no, not for example, we did it. We also found that encouraging children to make a number of snack selections at once versus individual um, choices uh, across the week uh, yielded more varied selections among those children who made the selections all at once 
including more fruit selection. So basically uh, we went to this preschool in Chicago and we uh, recruited children to either select their snacks all on Monday or their snacks for the week on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so those children who made all those snack selections on Monday or whatever day we were able to um, uh, work with them were more likely to select fruits, for example, than children who... Um, so let me snacks. just recap what you said. So by by giving the, the kids a choice, those that that on Monday pick their snack for the rest of the week, pick something typically healthier than if you gave them a choice each day of the week? I would say now we did not record the nutritional. Uh, yeah. And maybe I misused the word healthier. Um, no, no, no. Um, I, I just want to be careful how I talk about this because I'm not a dietitian nor a nutritional expert. So I just want to be very careful. Yes. <laughs> That's the researcher in me. Um, so I just want to be, yeah. So, so in what we did is we had a mix, let's say of neutral foods and health and what would be described by um, perhaps many parents as healthier foods, like a banana, a mandarin, orange, sure. things like that. And so the children who made all their selections on Monday were had more uh, varied baskets, if you will, um, and were more likely to select fruits than our children who made their selections each day. So the children who made a selection for one snack each day had less varied um, overall. Yes. And were less likely to select fruits. And so why 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 is that? Like one day for the whole week versus individual days. That's that to me. That's very interesting. Sure. So I think some of it uh, it goes, or excuse me, some of it is related to the fact that we anticipate wanting more variety than we want in practice. And so I think that um, you know I'm not going to want to eat the same thing every day. And so therefore I'm going to diversify my selections. Whereas in practice, when you ask me on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday, you know, I absolutely am going to, at least in my case, uh, want to eat the same thing. Same thing. Right. And of some of it also, I think, reflects that, you know, when we're looking at our basket of five things, because we get to, in this case, um, select five things that we find greater value in, um, you know, the first unit of each item versus the subsequent unit. So that goes uh, into diminishing marginal utility. Okay. And then, so, and you're right. Like when I first asked that question, I think I asked, I was referring to two different studies that you had worked on. So that was the one study. The other study was, which again, coming back to Halloween, which I felt yeah. was very interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Talk us th up through that one. Yeah. So in this, so the Halloween example and, you know, and I do think it's a great example. And actually after I shared that article and my friend sent me a picture precisely of a group of children, including her own trading candy after Halloween. So the idea is that, you know, kids appreciate that people have different preferences and importantly, preferences that differ from their own. They also understand that at least in these third-party contexts, and I really do think it would um, extend to children's own trading behaviors, 
do understand that in some cases, when you have something that you know someone else wants, you can get more of what you want from them, which I think is amazing. Uh, Again, going back to just this idea that children have a sophisticated understanding of the market before we would say that they have received explicit or formal education in that area. So in in that uh in that paper that you wrote is there is there anything that that kind of stuck out to say like why kids how did kids find the ability to do that like as far as like being I'll call it like market makers if you will like sure. I really love Starburst you've got a Starburst I've got a Skittle so like let's trade Sure well Um, You know, again, I think a lot of this goes back to just these informal interactions that children are having on a daily basis. From a very young age, children understand things like reciprocity and have these, you know, develop these intuitions or expectations for how people are going to behave. So if I do something for you, you're going to do something for me. If you refuse to do that, you're not a very nice person. And These sorts of, uh, you know, these data that become available to them very early in life can then be used to develop intuitions about other sorts of things, like how we engage with other people in the market, which in the U.S., you know, we have this market pricing economy. You get what you pay for. And so we start to learn how these rules outside market contexts, let's say, um, then apply to or don't to situations that do have this market component, like where we're going to the store and buying something. So I would say it's just these really early experiences that they're, you know, isolating the mechanism is is something for me perhaps to figure out in, in the future with my collaborators. But in general, it's just, I think, on us to really appreciate that kids are having these relevant experiences from day one. So where do you go next in in your research? Is there is there something else that like that's a kind of the, your point there, like a hot button topic that that you're currently going after or or researching right now? Yeah. So fortunately, money is a hot button topic. So <laughs> uh, I will, you know, there are a lot of people who write about this study, and so with uh, Susan Gelman, you hear her name, you you've heard her name quite a bit today. She's just again, my phenomenal advisor at Michigan, and I'm so fortunate to have these continued projects with her, but also with our collaborator, uh, Scott Rick, who's a marketing professor at Michigan, we are um, assessing uh, the development of spending and saving orientations in children. And so in our own work, we have already found that how kids feel about saving and spending um, is predicting what they actually do with money in a in a lab setting. And so those who find the prospect of spending money particularly painful are spending less than those who do not find the prospect of spending money particularly painful and that the ability to reliably report on our feelings about spending and saving emerge in children as young as five. And so the next step, what we're really trying to figure out now is just you know, how does uh, parent talk about money relate to the development of children's spending and saving orientations? How does child talk relate to their feelings about spending and saving orientations? More generally, how do parents and children talk about money? And um, 
you know, what might this mean long-term and just going back to the experiences you have in your professional um, capacity, talking with uh, young adults about college and, and how to manage earnings from that first job. Uh, I'm also interested in just how these key life transitions influence our feelings about spending and uh, just how we talk about money more generally. So, I mean, I could keep you here all day, Margaret, <laughs> because I find this your work extremely fascinating, but I know uh, I only have you for a limited time. So most people know on the podcast, I my closing question is what's the What's the best thing about being a parent? And I know that you're not you're not a parent. Um, but I know I know you're a dog owner. And my question was going to be, what's the best thing about being a dog owner? But you have mentioned Susan Gelman so often that I want to flip the script on you and ask, what is the talk to us about who Susan Gelman is and what is the best thing about working with this woman? Well, I cannot wait to send her a link to this podcast episode. Um, uh, so Susan is is many things and and wonderful is is truly captures it all, right? So I think um, as a grad student, I wasn't sure who I was or what I had to contribute. And so when you work with Susan, she from day one uh, values your contributions and um, really reinforces the idea that you belong within the academy, which can be sometimes not such an inviting space, particularly when you question yourself or others question you. And so she has always been supportive. And when there were folks who were a bit pessimistic about my uh, ability to make this transition from being in developmental psychology, the discipline is. Uh, one way to think about it too, being in marketing, she just said, okay, let's do it. Let's figure out how we're going to help you be a competitive applicant for positions in marketing departments. And so uh, for any uh, person who has gone through the PhD process that you have talked to, the importance of the primary advisor cannot be understated. And throughout my academic career, I have had other phenomenal people who have helped me get to that next step. And so if you had talked to me 10 years ago, I would have said, let me tell you about this woman, Justine Cassell, you know? And so there, uh, same thing happened with my postdoc. Let me tell you about Nick Epley. And so I've just been so fortunate. Um, and I, you know, Susan is, is a gift. And if you are ever able to chat with her yourself, you would quickly see that. And also just, she's so smart and she makes everything I say sound just, she'll say, Margaret, I think this is what you mean to say, particularly as a young graduate student. And um, in my mind, I would think, no, but that is now what I want to say. Uh, so having wonderful humans behind you is just um, something that I will, you know, never take for granted. And she, in terms of my professional life, is that wonderful human. Well, I think that is an amazing way to wrap up. Uh, I, I, I'll say this first conversation with you because I'm sure there's going to be many more to come, but uh, Margaret, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And uh, I know that we're going to put a lot of useful links into the show notes from this note. So parents, uh, be sure to check that out. 
But uh, Margaret, I can't thank you enough for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.